0: Fast there, so I'm gonna stand right here. <laughs> Ephesians four. <laughs> I know. It feels good. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> need some water or something we brought some up and some people got some anybody else need one want some water okay look at ephesians 4 please Um, again every night until christmas uh, we're going to be coming to ephesians 4 5 and 6 and examining what it means to walk worthy that's how ephesians 4 begins you transition from the doctrine to the application since God has done all of this for us in chapters 1, 2, and 3, what then is the imperative? Remember there's, remember, there's 41 imperatives in Ephesians, and 40 of them are in chapters 4, 5, and 6, which means all of the commands come after the doctrine is given. And it's going to be very applicational. It's like I just wish uh, some of these newer Christians that we know and people who aren't as grounded in their faith would come on Sunday nights just for this informal study and preaching so we could know what it means to walk worthy. Um, Remember that there's five major sections of walking. We went through these last time, but it was two weeks ago, so let me just quick look at them again. And, and they all are, uh, the transition key word is walk and therefore. There's those two words. Uh, so Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, and you might even write this right in your Bible because it, it really, sometimes the headings in the Bible aren't exactly right or the breakdowns aren't, aren't according to the theme. But verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4 is walking in unity. Uh, verses 17 to 32 is walking in holiness. Uh, 5, 1 to 7, walk in love. 5, 9 to 14, and I gave you these before, that's so why I'm going fast, is walk in light. Then 5, 15 to 6, 9 is walking in wisdom. So we have unity, holiness, love, light, wisdom. That's what it means to walk worthy. And then the end of the book is taken up with the spiritual warfare section because as you try to walk worthy, as you try to walk in holiness and light and love and unity and all the rest, Satan and all of his minions attack. And so Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to the end of the passage gives us the armor of God, tells us how to use it, that we might be able to stand during those spiritual attacks. Okay, You want to walk worthy, there will be spiritual attacks. And we know that even from Paul, who starts the the... The application section of ephesians 4 with i therefore paul the prisoner of the lord so he was facing attack and be very easy for him to say i'm i'm trashing all this because the only the only place that walking worthy got me was in prison for the lord remember we said last time that there were these opening thoughts so when we talk about uh unity and that's the section we're in verses 1 to 16 this is our second week on unity Hopefully next week we'll finish the unity section. But we said that Christians have, yes, we have individual obligations, but we also have corporate obligations. We each have obligations to each other, and we are commanded to keep the unity, which has already been created by Christ. Jesus has created that unity through his death on the cross, so so we're challenged to keep it. And we began last week looking at the first three verses of Ephesians 4. Let's go ahead and read the section we'll be dealing with tonight, which is verses 1 to 6. The threats to unity are listed in verses 1 to 3, and then the basis for unity is listed in 4 to 6. So we looked at the threats to unity last time. Remember, the, the, it tell, there's four different imperatives there with how we're to walk in unity. Let's, let's quickly list them. They, they're real simple there in verses 1 to 3. We went over these last time. What are the four imperatives? As, you, as we interact with each other and we have these obligations to each other, there are attitudes that are imperative that we exercise. Imper- what is number one? Or lowliness, right? A lowliness. The idea that we esteem ourselves rightly and we esteem others as better than ourselves. The threat then to unity is not lowliness or humility. The threat would be pride. I'm better than you. I deserve more than you. Um, Why is the pastor giving attention to you and not to me? Why am I not the one chosen for that uh, teaching ministry? Why did I not uh, get that prominent position in the church? Why am I not being recognized for my work why, am, why is my question in Derek's Sunday school class always wrong? I know that you've mentioned that to me several times. <laughs> but there's this pride issue, right? There's this issue like we feel like we're better, and that's a threat to unity. Because the minute we start to feel that way, think about it. Let's joke about this because it's a good joke. Derek's always, you feel. Well, my, question, my answers are never good enough. So that puts a wedge, right, between you. And then you go to Rick. Well, he doesn't like any. And now all of a sudden, look what's happened to unity, you see? because of pride and so that's a threat we walk in lowliness you guys okay you want to shake hands and make up okay it's just it's a <laughs> it's a yeah but but you see how and, and we joke about that but that could an issue like that in any church could become a real quick problem um, when it, whenever whenever they take my baby from the nursery they thank that one nursery worker they never thank me see there could be all those different types of attitudes could arise so pride is a threat, so we must walk with lowliness to each other. That's your obligation, to treat each other that way. Second one is gentleness. And we said the threat was anger, right? It's, it, it, we, we, we act with kindness and gentleness to each other. We said that our, um, our attitude should be like that of a trained dog that always is angry at our enemies but always receives our friends so it's not wrong to be angry even within the church but it's wrong to be angry for the wrong reasons we're just quickly going through these because we already talked about number three long suffering we have we have the idea that we can bear up when we're provoked when we're when other people rub us the wrong way we bear with them for a long time we don't quickly uh get angry i mean this is this is a key to any marriage agreed i mean there you're living with a person there's going to be friction from time to time as two sinful people are living together and there there's this idea of long suffering that has to happen in a church too how many how many times i mean this is sad to say um i mean you would hope in in a church like ours in 30 years as long as we're all still living we'll all still be coming but but there will be people that come and people that leave because they just can't stand each other and the unity of church is is fractured and the last one is similar to that, bearing with each other in love. So it's not just putting up with each other, but it's doing so in a loving way. Okay? And there are going to be annoyances and even harmful attitudes that come against us because we're interacting with s- sinful people. We're all sinful people, and so we have to bear with each other in love. Now, those are, those are imperatives for unity, and they're all rooted in something. In other words, there's a, there's a basis for this, and it's not just unity for the sake of can't we all just get along the unity is based in really the unity of God, the tri-unity of God, and the unity of our faith, and the unity uh, of the way we access God together. And there's a sevenfold, uh, almost like a what some people think is an old Christian hymn. It may or may not be, we won't say one way or the other, that starts in verses four to six, and there's there's seven ones mentioned. And so. What we want to talk about tonight is primarily the first one. We we're going to talk about all seven, but I want to primarily look at the first one and then just race through the last six in the in the time that we have tonight, okay? So, let's let's quick list the seven ones that are mentioned. Go ahead. One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one Baptism and then one God, it's a sevenfold uh, acclamation, but it's really fourfold. How come? It's sevenfold, but it's really fourfold. Why? Yeah, you got the three and one Trinity mentioned, right? The Father, Spirit, and Son are all mentioned, and so they they almost count as one, but they're split up for the sake of uh, the, their diversity as well. So why do we the the imperative in verse number three? It's for all of us. It's not just for the pastor, okay, endeavoring to keep the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. It's not just for the pastor to do. Like someone coming up, hey, pastor, did you hear these two are getting after each other? You better go break that up. No, that's everyone's energies and efforts must be given over to preserving the unity that Christ has created. So why do we do this? Because this unity characterizes the triune God. Our unity reflects his unity and the unity of our faith, okay? So, again, the majority of the time on the first one, one body, and then we'll boom, 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 right through the last six. One body, okay, one body. This is talking about, of course, the church universal. We've mentioned this before, but just to to make sure we all have it, when I say Capital C Church and Little C Church, what am I talking about? What is the difference? Who can help? And say it loudly enough so we can hear. What's the difference between Capital C Church and Small Letter C Church? Okay. And we we call that the universal church. We call that the invisible church. All saints from all time are part of that. Allie goes to Cuba and meets some people who are part of the capital c church right we could uh we could visit any country any place and we're all part of that church those who actually have been entered into by the sovereign call of god then little c church is the visible or local church like grace baptist church or some other church and uh what he's talking about here is the capital c church which has been created by christ at the cross something that in ephesians 3 was called a what? It starts with letter M. It's what Scooby and the gang always tried to figure out. The mystery. It's known as a mystery because it wasn't written about in the Old Testament. Sorry. It wasn't written about in the Old Testament. And it's a surprise. This is, a, this is unveiled now only to Paul. And he is responsible as the steward of this mystery to share what it means with everybody else. And most people are angry about it because the mystery meant what primarily? Why are people so angry about this mystery? The Gentiles are going to be allowed to be partners with the Jews to make this one entity now, this one body called the church? And the answer is yes. Look back at Ephesians 2, verse 15. Well, verse 14 as well. Don't misinterpret this passage, please. When it says, He himself is our peace, who has made both one, I believe that's what it's talking about is Jesus is the peace between Jew and Gentile. He is our peace. Now, he is, yes, our peace with God as well, but that's not what this passage is talking about. He has made both one. What are the both? The both are Jew and Gentile. He's made them one and broken down the middle wall of separation. This, this boundary, this ethnic boundary that has existed, that's gone because of Christ's uh, Death And he abolished in his flesh the enmity and has made, the end of verse 15, created in himself one, there's the unity again, one new man from the two and thus making peace so he can reconcile both of those groups to God in same term as we've just seen in 4 verse 4, in one body through the cross. Christ has united diverse people from all backgrounds into one body. You think about the diversity that we all share, not only racial or ethnic diversity, but, but financial uh, diversity or family or community or interests or whatever, all those different types, and here we are gathered together as one. Um, a phrase that uh, somebody frequently mentions as it relates to spiritual truth is be what you are, be what you are. We use that when we looked at Ephesians 1.1 when it says Paul uh, He's writing to the saints and faithful ones. That's what you are. So be that. right? If you are a Christian, be that. If you are one body, be that. right? Christ has made that. Christ has brought all of us who are true believers together. So, so let's be that. Let's, that's where the unity is based. So when we get angry at one another... Or we become proud against one another, or we don't bear with one another. The threats that are mentioned in verses one to three, then that's that is that is dividing. And it, is it, remember that passage in First Corinthians: is Christ divided? You know, this we're we're actually uh, not being what we should be. Go back to Ephesians chapter one. Uh, we we fluttered over this section real fast. The body is one of the pictures or symbols that is often used by Paul to describe the church. In fact, at the end of this unity section in 4.16, it mentions it, and it also mentions it in Ephesians 1. Let's quickly talk about this. If we are the body, who is the head? Right, we understand that, right? Christ is the head. So let's make some applications about that. Look at chapter 1, 22. He put, let me me use the... um, the terms for the trinity so we know the he, who the he's are. I, I think it's this. And the Father put all things under the Son's feet and gave the Son, or gave Jesus, to be head, as it relates to the body, over all things to the church, which is his body, which is his body. Now let's make a couple of points about Christ being the head of the body. There is one body, and Christ is the head. Let me, let me give you three quick things. Looking at verse number uh, twenty-two. Let's discuss for a minute. Okay, we're a little more informal on Sunday nights, and that's okay. Um, In verse one twenty-two, what's what's a key word you think there, as as it relates to Christ being the head of the church? Now, or the let's let's ignore the word head and let's ignore the word church. What, what, is a, what is a word there that says, well wow, this is an interesting word as it relates to Christ being the head? You're just doing your Bible study at home. You're reading this verse. You've got a notebook open. You're jotting some things down. What word besides head and besides church are interesting to you and why? Okay, all, share a little bit. He's head over all things to the church, to the church. And in the, in the passage in chapter 4 as well, it says God is the Father of all, above all, through all, and in you all. And we're going to have to define what that means. Is God really the Father of all? Or is it speaking just of the Father of the, of the people of the church? We'll express that in a minute. Yeah, head over all things. Good. Okay, put Great thought, great thought. Nothing's right or wrong here. We're just anybody else. It's a short Bible study we're doing here. Here's what I here's the word I point out, um, and this would, this would be thought number one about Christ being the head of the church. Uh, Christ the as head of the church is a gift. It's a gift. See what it says there? God gave him, God gave him to be head. Over all things, isn't that interesting? We have this phenomenal section of scripture that we've looked at before, and Christ is exalted above all things, as Dave pointed out. And then, we quickly go over this thought that God gave Christ the position, and He gave Him to the church. See that? He gave Him to be head over all things to the church. The phrase really could be could be stated, and Him. He gave as a gift. Christ, as our head, is God's gift to us as a church. What is a body without a head? There's going to be another point later, right? It, nothing. But it's a gift to us. And you go back to the Ephesians 4 or 5 passage where you say one Lord. That's a very similar term to one head. What if the gift had not been given? What if the body had no head? we'd be wandering around who would who would be who would we be attaching ourselves to we'd be looking for a head where would we find that what, totally understand in the hypothetical there is no church without Christ right i mean that's you're exactly right there is no church without Christ there is no body without Christ but i'm saying let's imagine there are groups of people who don't acknowledge Christ as the head and maybe even call themselves a church a church or a group or a congregation, what becomes their head? Absolutely. The latest uh, teacher of the day. The most popular new book that's come out. Right, That becomes their new attachment, and they're, and they're, they're wafting to and fro underneath that false doctrine. Oh, I, you're just scratching your mustache there. We heard about that earlier. But Christ is the gift. It's an advantage to us. It's a blessing to us. That he has been given to us. Second, okay. So Christ is the gift of the church. And here's what here's here's another thought. If the head had no body, or excuse me, if the body had no head, the body has no what? Not life. So it's the second thing. So Christ is the gift, and Christ is the giver of life. Okay. This is why, and I don't mean to be trite, or I I probably shouldn't even say this because it'll sound trite. This is why terrorists don't have people kneel down on the beach and chop off their hands or chop off their arms, right? You can live without those. They chop off the head. You can't live without that. Right? So that's the idea. Without, without the head, the body has no life, and you were already jumping to that thought. Um, the minute the head is severed from the body, life is over. Okay. And it's an image for us of the life-giving power that Christ sustains the church with fact the body this one body is energized by Christ's presence in us and that even talks about that in verse uh, 23 when it says he fills all okay another interesting thought of this is okay I'm used to uh, for 20 years speaking to youth so I think of strange illustrations the minute I'm teaching so that this is strange but when I start doing this I mean why am I doing this? What what is telling me to do this? Right, my my head is operating so so we can say my the actions of my body are reflections of my head. And in the same way, the actions of the church reflect upon Christ. They they are they are expressed that the, the The whole whole series that we're going through here is the glory of Christ in the life of the church. The way the church acts reflects Christ. The church is the expression of Christ in the world. Now think about why this is important to unity. Can you imagine how disunity mars the expression of Christ to the world? How often do you hear people talking about the church and, and not wanting to be a part of a church because you know, if I go there, that's the worst place to go. People hate each other at the church, and it's, an expression, it, it's a wrong expression of Christ. But the way Jesus has chosen to express himself to the world is through the church, and that's like a woe statement. Third, Christ is a gift. He's the giver of life, and he's also the governor, the governor of the church. That's what head means. Matt mentioned earlier, he was put under That's a military term, to be put in subjection. Uh, That the one who you've been put under subjection has absolute dominion over you. Christ has been raised to the right hand of God. He is sovereign over all. And the church, look at, at, we're still in Ephesians, but go to chapter 5. Go to chapter 5. This is a this is another way of saying this same principle. As the, this is something we'll get into, when we're talking about husbands and wives later. But just as the church is subject to Christ, Christ is our leader. Christ is our master. The word the word means to um, arrange troops under a military leader. When you guys were in, the, who who was the big general when you were in the service? Do you remember? Admiral, who was it? Admiral Zumwalt? Sounds like a Star Trek character. So did Admiral Zumwalt ever come onto the base? You, you wouldn't meet him. But imagine, imagine uh, MacArthur visiting the troops or Patton coming to visit the troops or Zumwalt doesn't really fit that same mold. But these, these major military leaders, you know, there's subjection to those men. Christ is the governing influence of the church, and we must, as a church, render obedience to our head, James four eight, Luke ten, verse seventeen, some other passages. He controls and he guides. With Christ as our head, the church is the body. You've heard that phrase often, especially in First Corinthians twelve, when it talks about the eyes and the ears and the different parts of the body. Um here it says in Ephesians one again. Uh, that the body is the fullness of Christ, um, in that we are pervaded by his presence, we are energized by his life, we are filled with his gifts. There is one body. This is it. Go back to Ephesians 4. Now just race through the last, because we have just a few moments left one body, all of these seven things are affirmations of why unity should be uh, should be kept in the church When you think about your body just before we go on to the next one and, and this is often uh, there's a scripture reference for this I can't think of where it is right now if one part of the body suffers, they all suffer with it right? Isn't it funny if you stub your toe, the whole the whole body feels that you. You don't go about mutilating certain parts of your body because you care for your body. Then why would we seek to harm or hurt others of the one body? This is it, one body. There is a unity here. And that's why Paul uses that illustration so much. Second, and again, we'll just maybe a minute each on these back in Ephesians 4, one spirit. And, of course, that's talking about the Holy Spirit. This is how the body was created through the power of the spirit the spirit is what energized christ raised him from the dead and the body is also the church is where the spirit dwells it's interesting to follow uh, this would be a great study for you the glory of god throughout uh, the bible where does the glory of god appear throughout the bible can you think back to places in the old testament where it appeared two major places where it appeared in the old testament the, the glory of god in the tabernacle where it rested above the mercy seat, even before that. Yeah, the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. The glory of God resided with the people. Then it resided uh, in the tabernacle. Then it resided where? Now we're in New Testament. John 1. It resided in the Lord himself. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only God and Father. His presence was on the earth, the incarnation. He walked with men. Where is the glory of God now? The glory of God and the life of the church—that's our whole series. It resides in us. The Spirit is the—the the Spirit indwells each believer. This, therefore, the Spirit indwells this one body, this church. When you think church, you have to stop thinking building. And start thinking the called-out people of God. When you think about one Spirit, we've been called by one Spirit. We are indwelled by one Spirit. We are. Sealed by one Spirit, we are led by one Spirit. We all have that same Spirit. It motivates us for unity. Third, I wish we could talk about it more. One hope, one hope of your calling. The word "of" in the Greek can be used in different ways, and what I think it means here is it's an "of" of source. In other words, it would read one hope. Which is sourced in your calling, or which originates in your calling? Remember back to Ephesians two when we walked in trespasses and sins, and we were separated from the uh, the covenants and the promises of Israel. It said we were without hope. We are without without God's call. We are without hope. And the hope that we have is not a hope so kind of hope. It's the expectation of promised good that originates in the sovereign call of God. When God called each one of you who are believers tonight, he attached a hope to that calling. What is that primary hope for, for believers? Let me ask. Okay, what is the primary hope for you as a believer? Indwelt by the Spirit, member of the body, what is the primary hope for you? What is the primary hope for you? It's, it's all the same. It's, it, your hope is not different. We all have that hope that originates in the same calling. How did you, uh, I'll call on people. How did you, John, enter the family of God? What was the original way you did that? The word is in verse 4. It's, you were called. Matt, how were you? You were called. You were called. We have one, you're not brought in different ways. Is what I'm saying. God called each of us, not at the same time, of course, but in the same way, by the same Spirit, put you in the same body and gave you the same hope. I don't mean to be morbid, but if we wrote out a list in chronicle- chronological order of our deaths, you know, we're all going to stand over so-and-so's body and, and we're going to gather together and celebrate. And we went right down the list. For every person, the hope for you is, as you know, death is approaching. Is that you have eternal life and 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 uh, in the presence of God forever? It's every one of our hopes, and it's sourced in our calling. This is a great unity, isn't it? It's a great motivation for unity. We're all hoping for the same thing, and it's not a oh we really wish and hope like like some funerals we go to where there is no hope for the person, but there is a hope that we're all relying. Isn't that encouraging? So why would we ever, like, have pride or anger with those who are in this same body? It doesn't make any sense, okay? There's a beautiful oneness to it, a real beautiful oneness to it. One Lord, we don't have to take a long time with that. This is, of course, referring to Christ, very similar to the head. The Roman lords of that day are not lords at all. He is king of king and lord of lords. Everything, 121, is beneath his feet. One faith. There's two options to this. I'm going to tell you which option I think it is, and I disagree with some Others. Some people think when we say one faith, it means well we all agree to the same doctrines, that it's one body of faith, right? Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. In the context here, I think it means we all entered into the family of God through the same faith, one faith. There's there's a there's a way to enter into the body. It kind of is. It, it's it's really talking about the church and how it's entered. There is one body which was created by one spirit and that calling into that body produces one hope and there's one Lord of that body and there's one way to enter that body and it's the same faith that we all exercise. Faith in Christ alone. 500th anniversary of the Reformation coming up, October 31st. 500 years since Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg Castle. And the... the, the, Dark truths were brought back to light. Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. And that, that is what is really being mentioned here. How do we come to know the Lord? How are we indwelt by the Spirit? We all do so by exercising the same faith. And the reason I think it's that is because um, a very similar verse in Romans um, 3, verse 3, you don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can, but I'll just quickly turn there and read it. Romans 3:3 3, 3 says, Oh, wait a minute. Did I write the wrong verse down? I must have. Oh, no. Hmm. Romans 3:3. 3, 3. Anyway, there's a verse, it's obviously not Romans 3:3. 3. 3. Maybe it's 3:30. Did I Yeah, it is 3:30. Okay, I forgot the zero there. Look down to 3:30. Very very similar theme of unity. There is one God who will just the circum who will justify the circumcised. That's referring to Jews, right? That's what I think this is talking about. I might be wrong, but that's what I think this is talking about. Because look at verse 29. We'll get the context here, right? Is he God of the Jews only? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, also God of the Gentiles. And there is one God who will just the circumcised, that I believe is Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised by faith. In other words, anyone who is justified, which means declared righteous, anyone who is declared righteous by God and will enter into this one body by the one spirit, have the one hope, and the one Lord is going to do so through the same one faith. Everybody who gets into the baptismal waters must say, I believe Jesus Christ alone is the Savior from my sins. And that is the way they enter. There is no other way to enter except through that faith. You exercise that faith the same way. You exercise that We all did if we truly are members of the same body. This promotes unity. When you think of that, when you look at each other in that way rather than the annoyances and the differences and the diversities that we share. One baptism. Well, is this talking about water baptism, spirit baptism? Could be talking about a lot of different things. Um, The word baptism in the Bible means to be placed into or immersed into. I think what is being talked about is the union that comes with Christ, that we are all placed into Christ. And if you're in Romans, well, maybe you jump back to Ephesians, but if you're still in Romans 3, Romans 6, verses 2 to 4, discuss this a little bit. Uh, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How that we who died to sin live any longer than it. Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Water baptism is simply an outward expression of a spiritual baptism that has already taken place. The baptism of the Spirit is not something that you wait for and somehow you get to the point where you're spiritually mature enough to experience some weird feeling. I've been baptized in the Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit is is a spiritual occurrence that happens once. At the moment of your conversion, it means the Spirit takes you as an unregenerate human and places you into this one body. Now it could be talking about water baptism too in the, in the sense that it reflects spiritual baptism. But we are all baptized that same way, spiritually by the Spirit. We are all placed under the same Lord, exercising the same faith, placed by the same Spirit into the same body. Boy, this unity just is very intertwined. It's like a knot that you can't untie. Go ahead. I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, a great verse to write down because it, it, the unity is, is so clear there too. One spirit, one baptism, one body. There is, in other words, let's say this. Divisions in the church are an offense to God and do not reflect what Christ created the church to be. And if you are one who is sowing discord among the brethren or creating disunity through pride or anger or impatience or a lack of love, then you are harming the body of Christ. Yeah, first Corinthians twelve thirteen. Another verse, I had that verse written here. You jumped ahead of me a little bit. Galatians three, twenty-six to twenty-eight as well. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, all are one in Christ. And the last one, the seventh one, is one God. Though many gods may be honored, Jehovah is the only true God and Father of all. Just for sake of time, I will say that I think this means the father of believers only. Uh, Yes, in in some senses, God is the father of all that he has created, but he is also the intimate father only of those who are his children by faith. And one of the reasons I believe that is because it also says, if you look at verse 6 of chapter 4, he's one God and father of all, above all, through all, and in you all. Well, we don't believe in pantheism. We don't believe that God is in all things or all people. We only believe that the Spirit indwells true believers, okay? And when it says overall, it means he's sovereign over the church. Through all, he's active in the church. In all, he's present with the church. Pretty cool. Overall, he's sovereign. Through all, he's active. And in all, he's present. This provides the basis to exercise lowliness and gentleness. In other words, the imperatives to treat others this way don't come from, well, I have to like these people because they're part of the church. No, we're not part of Grace Baptist in that sense. We are part of the body that Christ himself created, and the Spirit placed us into that. There's this beautiful oneness, and we must endeavor to keep the unity. What is the next word after verse 6? But which is a word of transition. Isn't this funny? We're going to come to this next week. There's one God, one, one spirit, one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, but he's going to go on to talk about the diversity in the church and how the beauty of the church is the diversity with unity and each having spiritual gifts and how this builds up the church to unity of the faith. It's going to be a, a beautiful study next week, verses 7 to 16, and we'll talk about that at that time. Anybody with a quick thought or word to share? If not, why don't you close us in prayer, Tony?